It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, my name is Daniil Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Today is Monday, February 8th, 2021, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from Hartman Institute's I Engage Project. Our theme for today is entitled Israeli Society and the Haredim, the Ultra-Orthodox. A turning point? Question mark. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem and myself, will be discussing a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhain, Director of the Hartman Faculty in North America will explore with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. At the Hartman Institute, we approach the Israel conversation as we do all of our conversations, from a perspective of Jewish values, seeking broad and deep engagement. Our aim is to encourage a serious and respectful conversation on Israel across political lines, promoting understanding and strengthening Jewish people. Let's begin. Anger is growing among Israelis across the political spectrum over Haredi or ultra-Orthodox behavior in response to corona. In the past, many Israelis, including myself, defended the Haredim, insisting that only a minority among them were flaunting the rules. But with Haredi schools defiantly opening despite the shutdown and tens of thousands attending funerals and weddings and other public events, mainstream Israelis are facing the hard truth. Haredi society is functioning as a state within the state. Much of its religious leadership has openly encouraged defiance of the corona rules, and the results are devastating. Though Haredim are between 10 to 15%, 12% of the society, up to 40% of those infected are Haredim. Most of us had long assumed that a new generation of Haredim had made its peace with Israeli identity, that the Zionist ethos was prevailing. But now we realize that this might have been wishful thinking. The widespread backlash against the Haredim is turning into a critical issue in the current election campaign and could prove decisive in determining its outcome. According to a recent poll, over 60% of the Israeli public and even a majority of right-wing voters whose coalition is dependent on Haredi participation want to exclude ultra-Orthodox parties from the next government. The politician most threatened by this backlash is Prime Minister Netanyahu, whose chances of forming a new coalition depend on the support of the ultra-Orthodox parties. In our last podcast, we discussed how this moment is a turning point in drawing the Arab-Israeli community closer to the Israeli mainstream. We may well be at a turning point in our relationship with the Haredim, but with a very different outcome. And so how should mainstream Israel react to a growing community in its midst that seems to have no interest in being part of it. 
Has the time come for reevaluation in our increasingly dysfunctional relationship? What would that look like politically, economically, culturally? Yossi, do you think this is a turning point? Remember, ideological conflicts with the Haredi community are not new since the beginning of the state. From demonstrations about travel on Shabbat through their neighborhoods, military draft, etc. Do you feel that this moment is different? And why? This does feel like a turning point. The reason is that in the past, there was always the feeling that we, the Israeli mainstream, could depend on the Haredim for life and death matters. The Haredi community was exemplary in creating a network of institutions uh, related to healthcare. There was Zaka, Yad Sara, which provides free medical supplies to anyone who asks. Uh, the Haredi community was rock bottom solid on life and death matters. You could not possibly be in better hands than the Haredi community. And yet what we've discovered to our growing dismay over the last year is that the Haredi community has almost completely sconded from the national efforts in the middle of a pandemic. And the sense of betrayal that is running so deep in Israeli society is that even on this, we can't depend on you anymore. What can we depend on you then for? What I hear you saying is actually something very innovative, that with all the difference, there really was a shared communal value. There was something that we could take for granted. And what you're speaking about is actually one of the core features of Zionism. Zionism has had multiple goals. One of its goals, political Zionism, was to be a place where Jewish death would be the enemy of the state and where Jewish life would be the primary value of that state. There was also cultural Zionism, which wanted to create a Jewish democratic state and a new Jew. The Haredi community was always anti-Zionist, but maybe it was just anti-Zionist in the cultural Zionist dimension, in the political Zionist story, which was to create a place where Jews could be safe. In fact, they shared. And that was less ideological, but it was at the core of who we are. And now, it just, we don't even know who we're talking about. We thought we all shared pikuach nefesh, you know, the value of human life. All Israel shared that value together. But at this moment, we don't share it. Why do you think that is, Daniel? What's happening here in terms of the value restructuring in the Haredi community? Because something, something's going on here. I don't fully understand, but I, I'm trying to figure it out from the inside. And I think one of the things that's happening is that in the Jewish tradition, there is a built-in contradiction between two commandments. One is the commandment of pikuach nefesh and v'chai behem, the value of human life over all commandments and the obligation that life takes precedence over the law. And the other value is the value of kiddush Hashem, which is the value of dying at certain moments, willingness to sacrifice for the sake of Torah. There's these two different moves. Now, Jewish law works out when does life take precedence and when are you supposed to be willing to sacrifice life for the sake of Torah. But the values are in conflict. It's not a simple story. Because if Torah is important, at some point you have to be willing to die for it. And at the same time, part of the core values of Torah is life. So what we're discovering is that at this moment, 
the Haredi community is deciding. This is a moment not for pikuach nefesh, but for kiddush Hashem. Not for elevating life, but for sacrifice. I think you're right. And the response of mainstream Israel is, okay, when you told us that Torah study takes precedence over providing a dignified livelihood for your families, we swallowed it. When you told us Torah study takes precedence over joining with the rest of us and physically defending the country, we hated it, but we swallowed that too. Now you're telling us that Torah study takes precedence over actual life and death? Adkan, till this moment and no further. To get back to your original question, is this a turning point? That's the turning point. I feel it in myself. I was ready, like most Israelis, to absorb and to tolerate and say, okay, we have to accommodate, we have to figure out ways of living with a community that has such truly profound values. And okay, they're not all my values, but for the sake of pluralism, for the sake of Jewish unity, we're going to have to absorb a good deal of bile here. Now you're telling me that I have to accept the fact that hospitals are being overcrowded, that people are dying, that thousands of businesses are collapsing. The Israeli economy is in crisis, all in the name of Torah study. I can't accept that. What you're telling me is that Torah study is now in direct conflict with my well-being, my most basic well-being, and the ability of this society to remain intact. I hear you. You know, the so-called dirty secret behind the Haredi going into the army issue is that the Israeli army doesn't really want them. And the Israeli army doesn't need Haredi. Actually, the army numerically doesn't need the same numbers. It changes the whole balance of men and women and secular Israelis. So we could tolerate Haredi not going into the army because deep down we know it's not pikuach nefesh. Deep down we wanted Haredi to go into the army because we wanted them to go into the job force and to become Israelis. The army issue wasn't an issue of life and death. Now we're at the first issues of life and death. And that is hitting our boundary in a way that's much more complicated. And you know, Daniel, when I hear Haredi politicians speak, I realize they have not yet absorbed the severity of this moment. They don't know where most Israelis are at now. And I fear a major blow-up is coming, and they are completely unprepared for the backlash that I feel is imminent and may very well express itself in the elections in March. I think you're right. We're trying to understand a deep sectarian moment. I want to add to what this moment is about. Before I was speaking about, is this a pikuach nefesh moment or a kiddush Hashem moment? Are we supposed to sanctify God's name now? When you look at the sources, it actually is even a little more complicated. These moments of dying for the sake of Torah are almost predominantly when someone from the outside is trying to coerce you to leave Judaism. Kiddush Hashem is the last safety vow to ensure that non-Jewish forces don't destroy Judaism because when the forces from the outside come, we're going to turn to them and say we're going to be willing to die. But when it's an inner Jewish debate about different conflicting values, what do we as Jews care about, Torah or life? We always care about life because life is what enables us to live Torah. Choosing life is not an assimilation moment. 
It's only an assimilation moment when someone from the outside is trying to push you. Maybe what we're really seeing here is it's not corona or a disregard for health. It's that the government, through its corona regulations, is like Poland, the Ukraine, Russia, or any non-Jewish force selling the Jewish people give up Torah study. They didn't see it as an inner Jewish moment, but as an external force coming to them and saying to them, give up your Judaism. And there, the Kiddush Hashem instinct, the switch, gets pushed. But what does it mean when you have a group in your society? What happens if that group is not even seeing us on this issue as part of a Jewish majority, but as an external, secular, non-Jewish state trying to move the Haredi community away from their Torah? That is an even deeper sectarian moment. I think we need a reset on both sides. On the majority side, we have to stop playing the political game that's been very comforting for left and right. Everyone borrows the Haredi parties in a moment of political need, and everyone is willing to pay the price for Haredi separatism if you'll support me. So that the mainstream political system has to free itself from its dependency on Haredi separatism. The Haredi community has to start asking itself the hard question that you laid out, Daniel, which is, who are you, the Israeli majority and the Israeli state? Who are you to me? Are you something external? Are you Poland? Or are you uh, part of me? Am I, am I part of you? And in that sense, I feel that this could be a very positive turning point. It's going to require a great deal of heartache and struggle, patience, because the majority needs to do two things. It has to be steady in making this political change, and it has to do so without anger, let alone, God forbid, hatred. The anger that you said you have. I work on it all the time, usually not successfully. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's really complicated because the Haredi community are testing the essence of Zionism. Because Zionism is about being the homeland of the Jewish people. That means we have to create a multicultural space, both for Jews and non-Jews in Israel, for each community to define itself and to live in our midst. And the serious question are, what are the limits of that tolerance? But embedded within Haredi ideology, and I think it'll always be there, Yossi, is that they're going to be part of us, but not completely part of us. In one sense, they're part of the Jewish majority. And another part, Haredi ideology is always built on some level of separateness. The outside world, whether it is Poland or Israel, is part of a modern experience that threatens what they believe is authentic to Judaism. And the only way they could protect themselves is through some measure of separation. That's why you dress differently. You choose poverty. You, you don't engage fully in that outside society. You can't. Because the minute you do, you assimilate. They need the ghetto. The question is, can Israeli society tolerate a ghetto? Can it? And accept that that's part of the story. That as we're coming home, we're going to have all types of Jews, and we have Jews and non-Jews. Can we accept a partial ghetto in our midst? Now, that's not simple. When it comes to that you need the ghetto to protect yourself, then we're there with you. We're with you. But when we feel that that ghetto is not just protecting yourself, 
but it's uh, endangering my life. That's the tipping point. And then I wonder whether the Haredim aren't their own worst enemy here. They're so much a part of the system that, as you said, they have all the political power by virtue of being the tipping point for a coalition. They are the balance of power. So they play the system phenomenally well. They're using their political power in order to create a ghetto. You could be in a ghetto if you want to be the minority. You can't be in the ghetto and still be in the majority because there are no checks. It's, it's a complicated story. And so I wonder whether the Haredim on this issue are also not their own worst enemy. They force the country to give them an autonomy that ultimately is destructive and that ultimately will cause this country to separate from them much more than they separate from the country. Let's take a short break. And when we return, Ilana Steinhain will join us. Hi, my name is Sabra Waxman, and I'm the Senior Marketing Manager at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Join us February 15th through 18th for an interfaith symposium exploring questions of truth, difference, and allyship for people of all faiths. Don't miss this opportunity to learn with more than 20 top Hartman scholars and guest experts. To see the full schedule and to register, visit winter.hartman.org.il. Ilana, what take do you have from within our sources that can enrich and shape our thinking on this subject? Well, first of all, I'll say in preparation for this podcast, I've been reading Israeli Haredi writing just to see what people are talking about. And I have to say that the, the most countercultural voice that I found is Yehoshua Pfeffer's online Sarich Yun. I mean, if you want to know who your partners are, there's your partner right there. It's just absolutely fascinating. But I don't want to talk about Haredim and how they educate themselves or how Zionist they are. Or I don't want to talk about that. What I want to talk about is enforcement. Because the fact that it's political career suicide to criticize or penalize Haredim because you might want to make an alliance with them later, a coalition, there's a problem here. And I want to talk about that problem. And the rabbis have a name for this problem. They ask questions about how you relate to powerful figures who are doing the wrong thing. Do you placate them? Do you bend to their will because you need things from them? or you're scared of them, whatever the case may be, or do you have integrity and you tell them that what they're doing is wrong? That concept is what I wanna talk about for a few minutes here. And I wanna give the first example, even before we give the concept a name. An example actually comes from adjudication, comes from judging. And that's not so surprising because the judiciary is supposed to be separate from interests and political coalition building in that kind of way. So it's not surprising that the rabbis bring this up in context of making judgments that have integrity. Here's an example from Ketubot 84b. So here's what you need to know before the story. Anasi, literally prince, was the person who internally presided over the rabbinic Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, as it were, and externally was the political leader vis-a-vis the Roman government. This is in ancient rabbinic Palestine. You'll see why that's important in a minute. Here's what the Talmudic passage says in Ketubot 84b. People from the Nasi's household once seized possessions belonging to orphans in an alleyway. 
Now, these people weren't just stealing from orphans. They were actually probably collecting a debt that these orphans' father owed to somebody in the Nazis' household. But then, of course, they're taken to court because who knows if this kind of just seizing someone's possessions in a back alley somewhere is okay. So there's a session that's held, and the judges are Rabbi Abahu, Rabbi Hanina Bar Papi, and Rabbi Isaac Napcha. And Rabbi Abba was also sitting there watching the proceedings. And he watches as the judges say, what you did was perfectly fine. Members of the Nazi's household, what you did is totally fine. And the Talmud says, Rabbi Abba says to them, is this because the defendants are from the Nazi's household that you're favoring them? He looks at his colleagues and he wonders, would we in other cases for other people allow this kind of conduct and behavior to collect your debt? Or is it just because we want to be on the good side of this powerful figure? The rabbis have this concept, Hanufah, flattery or distortion, where because you're from the Nasi's household, you hold power and we need that power or we're afraid of that power. It's very easy to give in to what these people are asking for or what these people are not asking for. They're just taking and that is what I see going on in this moment with the Israeli government vis-a-vis -vis Haredi society. It's essentially saying, oh, you're the Nazis household. You do whatever you're gonna do, we need you. But Hanufa is very serious. The idea of Hanufa as distortion and pollution comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 35, verse 33. The verses beforehand tell us be careful if someone commits murder on purpose or by accident, do not let them pay you off instead of actually bringing them to justice. And verse 33 describes that if you do let them pay you off, you are polluting the land. You shall not pollute the land. You shall not pollute the land in which you live. Blood pollutes the land, and the land cannot have any expiation for blood that is shed upon it. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about a situation in which the government of Israel is allowing people to die because they are afraid to do anything about it. It is straight distortion, pollution of the land. As much as you're going to talk about Haredim doing the wrong thing, there's a government here. There's a government. This is the opposite of sovereignty. When the rabbis talk about Hanufah, they're talking about the less powerful against the more powerful. What does it mean for an Israeli government to say, vis-a-vis -a, -vis a group of our own constituents, our own citizens, we are less powerful? But I'll be honest, I don't know if we can avoid Hanufah in a situation of politics. The rabbis bring up Hanufah in a situation of judgment and justice, where judges are supposed to be above the fray or beyond the fray, and they're not supposed to need those favors. But I think we have to consider it. And so I wanna end with what I think is a real aspiration, and I don't know if it's possible, and maybe that's our conversation. Sanhedrin 7b. When Rav Dimi came from Eretz Yisrael, he said the following, Rabbi Nachman, the son of a Kohen, 
interpreted a verse in Proverbs that says, the king by justice establishes the land, but one who is looking for gifts for true moat overthrows it. Rabbi Nachman, the son of a Kohen. Now remember, truma means the gift that we gave to the Kohen, but it also just means gifts. Rabbi Nachman, the son of a Kohen says, this teaches us that if a judge is like a king, meaning he doesn't need anything and is not dependent on anyone, then he will be able to judge fairly. He'll be able to establish the land. But if he's like a Kohen, if he's like a priest who depends on the people to give him truma, to give him gifts, then he's going to actually overthrow the land. He's going to undermine the land. So I'm ringing the bell twofold here. One is we cannot just make this about the Haredi street, and we cannot even just make this about Haredi leadership. This is about the definition of sovereignty. That's one. And the second is in that definition of sovereignty, we need to reckon with the fact that politics run amok becomes a serious corruption of what the job of government is, which is to protect its citizens. This is a disservice to the Haredim who don't want their grandparents to die. It's a disservice not from just their own leadership, but from the Israeli government. You're saying, let's not just think about them. Let's think about the system. Is Israel really acting like a sovereign state? And then when it doesn't, who's it blaming? Is it possible? that what we're seeing here is that the Haredi community has become its own greatest enemy. This anti-Zionist group is actually the most Zionist of them all, wielding power more than anybody else, but to their own detriment. And it's that complexity. They're forcing the government to not give out fines. They had a 5,000 shekel fine that they raised to 10,000 shekel. You know, everybody was laughing because every Haredi who got the 5,000 shekel fine wasn't paying it, every school. So they said, no problem, give me a 10,000. The 10,000 shekel fine, not paying it costs the same as not paying the 5,000. So here you have a community that defanged the government and now is dying as a result of it. So here's my question. I understand that the rabbis didn't think about, you know, the separation of powers in the same way that we do. But the reason the rabbis talk about this in the judiciary is because there has to be some jurisdiction that is above the fray. And my question is, where is the check on this? Where is the check and the balance? That's my question. I love what you're saying about the sovereignty point, but where's the check? Yeah, I think that your point, Ilana, about the power imbalance that the government really has imposed on itself is crucial here. One of the Haredi leaders, uh, Moshe Gafni, who's the head of uh, the major Haredi party, said uh, the other day that the secular Israelis are responsible for creating the conditions of overcrowding in Haredi neighborhoods. And of course, secular Israelis were justifiably outraged. And yet, I thought, listening to him, that there was a kernel of truth in what he was saying. Not the way he intended it, but mainstream Israel, which really does have the power and has impaired itself, has prevented itself 
from wielding the power of a sovereign majority does bear a large measure of responsibility here. And so what really needs to be done, and Daniil, this goes back to what you were asking before, what really needs to be done is not how do we punish the Haredim, but how do we fix the system? And we bear at least as much responsibility, we the majority, as the Haredi minority. This is a great place to end. The question is, how do we move forward, as you said, Yossi, and whether the Haredi community is going to let us move forward in a way that they need as much as the rest of other citizens and groups in Israeli society needs. Maybe a path forward is not an issue of blame for this or that, but how do we create the checks and balances that Ilana is talking about that will apply to everybody? And these checks and balances can't be in the police and they can't be in the judiciary. They have to be at the heart of the political system. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was co-produced by David Svi Kelman and Tali Cohen and edited by Tali Cohen and music is provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are available. It's a difficult topic. It's a painful topic, but thank you so much for helping to shed some light and maybe some hope.